Welcome to O2 Coaching's Empower Your Team podcast series with your host, Chloe Caron, founder and president of O2 Coaching. As an executive coach, author, businesswoman, thought leader, and speaker with more than 20 years of experience, Chloe's USC, her unique strategic contribution, is to create a new generation of inspiring and inspired leaders by positively impacting the lives of one million leaders through her webinars, conferences, books, and podcasts. In this podcast series, Chloe and her guests will take you on a journey, sharing their leadership stories, struggles, successes, and learnings. The conversations will highlight practical advice and insights for leaders. Be sure to share your thoughts on this podcast series on our LinkedIn or Facebook pages. Enjoy this podcast. So welcome to our Empower Your Team podcast series. Last week, we were together. We discussed the concept of personal growth as a leader with Natalie Brown, Senior Director Legal Affairs Desjardins Group and its impact on the business. This week, we will dive into the concept of head, heart, and guts with Francoise Dion, president and managing partner of DGC Capital and chair of the board of the National Gallery of Canada, and also director or president, I should say, president of l'Association des Femmes en Finance du Québec. She says that the true leadership is a very holistic thing. It's the head, the heart, and the gut. So no better person than Françoise to talk to us about that. I think this is even more pertinent these days as we're going into phase two of the COVID pandemic here, at least in Montreal and probably elsewhere in other regions of the world. Um, because I found that when we initially had our first lockdown, leaders were very much into their head, trying to control everything, trying to find a plan, trying to make sure that they would um, save their businesses or at least make sure that they wouldn't fall under the pressure that the pandemic has brought to us, every one of us. And so it's easy for us as leaders or business owners to go into our heads and really live there. And the invitation is to actually keep track of where we're at, notice if we are actually mostly in our head, and to go down, if you will, in our body, and to think about how we could lead with more of our hearts and our guts. And what would that mean? And so if I lead with my head, um, I'm more into planning into deciding into things being black and white, needing to have the data, needing to understand what we're going to do, how we're going to get there, what the results are. I'm more concerned about the KPIs. All very, very important elements, obviously, as leaders. The thing is not to be only there. And especially now that we're going into phase two, I'm hearing a lot of stress, a lot of distress, actually, on leaders, of, of leaders, I should say, and their employees. So as leaders ourselves, we need to be aware of that. We need to make that space for people to, to know that they can be whole. And so therefore, as leaders, I think we absolutely need to be 
to lead with our head, our heart, and our gut, to be courageous to have those conversations, to challenge status quo and say, okay, how are we going to do things so that it works? Um, maybe innovate, maybe think of things to do differently and to take into consideration people and how they are and where they're at. So that's the invitation as you listen to Françoise Lyon. As always, enjoy, be inspired and inspire. In the context that we're in, people need and leaders need so much guidance, I think, because things are different. And, and although we're searching and we're finding answers within ourselves more and more because of what you and I would just talked about, that we're getting back to our roots, we're being anchored uh, in so many ways. I was really, really, really curious to, to have this time, you and I. You and I actually met, I don't know if you remember, in one of the um, uh, Association of Quebec Women in Finance. I think it was the Gala uh, des Audacieuses a couple of years ago. And you did an amazing speech. And I fell in love with you at that moment. Was that around uh, Monette and Tinkerbell? <laughs> yeah, it was around kisses, around kisses uh, and, and numbers, and I couldn't remember, and I wanted to copy it and say, <laughs> I need to repeat this, it's amazing. And uh, I fell in love with you, and I said, one day, one day, I don't know how, I don't know when, but one day we'll get to meet, and today's the day, so I really want Today's to the day. <laughs> that was probably the gala two or three years ago where I was trying to demystify for the Anglophone crowd what That's going right. to a Quebec gala was. That's right. That's I don't know what got into me that evening. That wasn't even my speech. I, I don't know. I was, I, I just went off on a tangent. Something Mitsu said just got me going. That was it, you know. You'd be very surprised to find out that I was a very shy child and incredibly uncomfortable speaking publicly until I was about 25. And I don't know what happened. I spoke to somebody one day and they just said, listen, stop thinking that you're teaching them something and start talking to them and just share stories and you'll get your message across. And I think it stuck with me. But that night I didn't have that much wine. It wasn't because I was drunk or anything. I just, I don't know. I was on a, I was on a roll. <laughs> I was mad about something about, you know, the statistics I'd seen in the industry and I just yeah. went off. Yeah. It's probably that. It was probably that when Mitsu was hosting that year. Yeah. yeah. But it's amazing when you say tell stories because that's exactly what I got from from you giving that speech, I, I, I said to myself, and it's actually so aligned with our topic today, I said to myself, oh, what a great representation of a great leader, great woman leader, but a great leader regardless, um, that operates from your head, your heart, and your guts, you know, and, and that's our topic today. Uh, and I really was so curious to hear you on this because you don't see that, you don't see that that often, a leader that can navigate through those three elements. How do you cultivate that? You're right. <laughs> the whole heart part has been evacuated for industry and coming from finance, it's even worse for somebody yeah. like me. Uh, trust me, we didn't talk about love, compassion and caring at all. Uh, throughout my whole undergraduate degree at SSC and I don't even think today, or maybe today, maybe after what's happened in the last three months, because this has been a paradigm shift in our world completely. And I think people are suddenly realizing with Black Lives Matter and Indigenous issues and truth and reconciliation that if we don't stop being intellectual in our way of being strategic and in our way of guiding and leading people, we are going straight for the abyss. Because the reality is, is we remain warm-blooded human beings. And with that comes a whole package <laughs> of emotions. And if you really want to tap into people and get them moving and going when you have the privilege of being a leader, 
you do have to tap into all three. You do have to tap into your gut where that's your, I call it the little antennas that kind of give you a, a signal that, ooh, don't go this way, don't go that way. We're very good at repressing that, you know. We're actually very well trained to do the intellectual part of leadership. Yeah. It's pragmatic, it's process-driven, and it's important. We need that. It's the guideline, it's the map, it's the road to get us from point A to point B. But it doesn't mean it has to be a straight line. And for that to be understood, that has to bring in the guts and it has to bring in the heart. So the heart is the whole compassion and caring part. If you want to be a true leader, you have to care about the people that you're leading. And that means accepting them as a whole package. So for me, true leadership is a very holistic thing. It's, it's the head, the heart, and, and the guts. You can't take out one of them and expect to be a true inspirational leader. And I guess this is where everything gets mixed up with a lot of people because we tr we're trained in business to be managers. I mean, managing resources is one thing, like managing the budget, the, you know, everything, every bucket that you can think of that, that runs a business, that's a managerial tax. It, it really has to do with optimizing resources and, or, you know, protecting assets. But leadership, I still debate whether or not you can be trained to be a leader, I mean, an inspirational leader. I mean, you can be put in a position of authority and become the leader, but as to whether or not people want to lead, like follow your lead, that's completely different. And when you kick in the heart, the guts is one thing. The guts is more to protect, I guess, what you're trying to do. The gut is there to give you signals when things are going off track or something's not right, and you have to listen to that. But I don't think gut is what is going to help you. Sorry? That's the intuition part for you, the gut? It's gut for me is part of the intuition, yeah. It has to do with the antennas, which, you know, and it also has to do with the courage to make difficult decisions. You know, we use the word gut because it can get ugly and bloody. You know, you're digging deep in there and you're pulling things out and it's like you're rearranging things. And in my book, I almost see like a, you know, an operation of some kind. But yes, I do lead, I do tend to make a link or a dotted line between gut and intuition to a certain extent. Like, and beyond intuition, it's, 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 a, it's a profound in-depth in depth feeling that something's either really right or not right at all. And it's to stop when that happens and, and try and internalize and analyze it. You use the words courage, and I'm curious to hear you more on that because we talk about being courageous, leaders that are courageous, but it's so difficult because there's so much pressure. I feel that these past few months have helped us be more courageous. Would you say that's true? Or Well, we were pushed to being more courageous, whether we wanted to or not, and we didn't really have a choice. I think courageous for me is, is walking the difficult line of where you're on the cliff and if you make one wrong move you can fall <laughs> you can fall off the cliff a lot of people avoid the difficult road because they don't want to fail i mean fear of failure drives us more in this society than hope for success which is insane yeah we're more scared of failing than the thrill of potentially you know being successful and i don't want to say winning because that's very it's almost negative in a way. It's not winning. It's, it's being, it's arriving somewhere, attaining something. And, but the fear of failure, I mean, actually learning how to fail gracefully is an art in itself, which is not taught in our society. There are other cultures that it's perfectly okay to fail. I mean, I'd have to compare the United States to Canada. Yeah. You are actually veneered in the United States if you fail many times and picked yourself up. The whole, you know, story about oh, he dusted himself off or she dusted herself off and like off she went to the races again. And I, I remember driving through Hershey, Pennsylvania when I was in my 20s. 
and reading about the history of the Hershey guy who started the Hershey bar. I mean, he, he created a city, there's a hotel, there's a spa. I mean, he, he, he built the, he built a whole city around the whole idea of, of his chocolate and his philosophy. But I think he failed 12 times before he got there. You would think here after the second time, people wouldn't want to show their face. But in the United States, he was encouraged to pick himself up and start over again. So even the concept of failure right next door to us in the United States is, is veneered in a way. It's, it's something that's good. It's encouraged. You're, you're, you don't get a negative check mark because you've had three failures in your past. So learning to fail and, and, and learning from failure is a good thing. But if you've never been shown the way that that's okay, you fear it. And if you fear it, then you're stuck. I just find people... Forget about the guts part because they avoid it altogether. The minute they start seeing something that could be dangerous or could be different or could be forcing them out of their comfort zone, they step back and, and then that's where it all gets muddled. Um, it grow. becomes safe leadership. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, I use the word leadership. It just becomes safe. Yeah. And if you're never pushing yourself, then it's just the status quo. For some people, the status quo is perfectly fine. But in this day and age, <laughs> status quo is death. You can't stand still. And I, I don't know if you've ever read any of Thomas Friedman's books. Uh, you know, thank you for being late. And, and there's a few of them that he came out with, but he has an incredible analogy in one of his latest books around our world is going through one of the biggest storms it has ever come across throughout the history of man. We're moving faster than we have ever moved in the history of man. Revolutions are lasting like, you know, three minutes these days. I mean, once a revolution was like something would happen, you'd assimilate it. It would take 250 years before you got it. The Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution and the printing press. Now we've gone through five revolutions in less than 50 years, and we're still going through another one right now, which is probably the sixth one in 50 years. The human being is not even adapted to change that quickly to that. But what he was saying is you can compare it to a hurricane. We are in a massive hurricane of change in our society. And people who think that they're going to build a 300-foot wall to stop the hurricane from coming in have missed the mark altogether because the eye of the hurricane is 30,000 feet up. The only way you can survive when you're going through a hurricane is to sit yourself in the eye of the storm and dance with it. So what does that mean? That means you have to learn to be able to adapt, accept, and move with change, which means the hurricane is going this way. You don't fight it you should be aware of it. It's like, you remember the analogy like 20 years ago, like there's a train coming in town. Some people are on the train. Some people are on the platform watching the train and some people don't even know there's a train coming through. If you're not aware that there's a hurricane coming through our world and our, our humanity right now, well, you, I don't know where you live, you know, but the reality is, is you have to learn to dance with the storm within the eye of the storm and, and you will be fine. Because if I'm listening to you and I'm a leader, because I, I see this, I see this in, in the companies that I work with, that some leaders are like so in tuned with what's going on right now. And some are still expecting that things are going to go back to normal. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking if I'm a leader uh, who's not so comfortable with managing change and I need to step up my game and I need to really embrace that, how, what, what do you tell them? You know, it has a lot to do with, I, I really strongly believe that a leader is sort of a chess master you know, if you've ever played chess, you know that there's, and I, I heard this analogy or read it somewhere like a few years ago, that a really good leader is like a chess master. He's looking to find the best moves based on each of the roles, strengths, and weaknesses of the pieces that he's been given within his team. Mm -hmm. And the objective is to collectively, the most efficiently, and, and the best adapted to each of his team members or pieces on the game to get to where they're trying to get. And um, I would 
really tend to tell a leader who's a bit lost in all this to actually start listening to the gut and to the heart and to find a way to use those two elements within their leadership style to be embracing what's happening in the world and using the team around them as a sounding board, as sources of information. And it's a lot more about listening than it is about talking these days. Because honestly, a 21-year-old might teach us something that will stick us out of the mud or take us out of the mud more than a 65-year-old that has 40 years of experience in the job market. Because the way the market is going these days, we all have something to contribute to how we want to move going forward. So I really think if a leader is stuck it's to take a step back and really take a scan of themselves on how they've been acting as a leader and what they've been using as information and why they're so uncomfortable with the concept of change. And then to leaning on the team, because it, it goes both ways. You know, we, we always seem to think that a leader is this authority that is dictating something down. It's truly a two-way street of information. The only big difference with a leader is the leader is there to bring out the best in people, is there to inspire people to want to move towards that common goal and hopefully make them better individuals along the way, but also at the same time there to take the risks, to stop, to push when it's time to do so. The, the role is really there to stick your neck out and make sure that you know if something goes wrong, you take responsibility. If something's going right, you give the credit where it's due and it's it, like I said, I'll say it again. It's very, very difficult to teach somebody to be a leader. Somehow it has to sort of come from within the desire to, to work collectively with a group to get somewhere. I've often heard the analogy is like there's a, a dock and the leader's in front and the team's behind and the leader's got his back to the water and he's explaining or trying to inspire his team to the reality of having to dive in and cross whatever water they have to to get to the other side. An authoritative leader will force the team to throw themselves in the water and go after them. So the team's in front, he's behind or she's behind, and off they go to the races. The basic leader will jump in with his team members and everybody takes off at the same time. So that's like, you know, you're at the right space, people get it. And then it's one, two, three, go, let's all go in. But an inspirational leader before he even finishes or she even finishes explaining what they're trying to do, the team's already in the water ahead of the leader because they got it. They just, they just want to get there. You know, they're so excited. They, they're, 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 they're gone. They don't even need the leader anymore to be in the front. They've gone. And I think to get to that space, you need to know who your team members are. You need to know their strengths and their weaknesses and you need to work with them individually and collectively to get them at the best that they can be and even uncover things that they have within them that they're not even aware. So you almost have to be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a sociologist, you know. And I've often said that if I went back to university today, I would demand courses on sociology, psych, you know, psychology. These are all things that I've needed throughout my career, which were never thought to me. Even networking was, well, you know, I have to be careful. I graduated in the early 90s. That wasn't even a, it wasn't even a catchword at the time. But I can't consider myself having been very well prepared for reality of what our industry and even the world has been over the last 30 years. I was not prepared for it. I didn't know how to network. I didn't understand the concept of networking. I had one sociology course and it had a lot to do about management styles. It wasn't about dealing with people. The most difficult thing I've had to do throughout my career is manage teams. I never even, I had one or two HR courses, which were so basic. And I've been sent for, you know, upgrades of leadership and management courses to INSEAD and Harvard Business School. And I went to Bath University in England. Nobody ever thought about sending me from an HR refresher. 
I mean, to be a good leader, you have to understand the concepts of leading people and that also understanding people. It's more basic than that. Um, so I, and I heard you talked about self-awareness. So it really yep. starts with you as a leader, yep. not only knowing your people and knowing their strengths and knowing, you know, how to motivate them. Or inspire it's them. more about knowing who I am, yeah. knowing my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, becoming a leader is, is hiring people that sound like us. So you say we hire people that are like us? Yeah, of course. The comfort zone is to hire people that sound and and feel like us. I mean, of course, we want people that resemble us. The most difficult thing to do as a manager, forget leader, is to hire people that make us uncomfortable. And create the only person. way yeah. we will ever progress in a business with our objectives, pushing the limit, is if we are always tittering on that uncomfortable. When things get too comfortable, we tend to sit back and let things drive, and that's when things go awry. You have to always be you know, on this high tension wire of, of, of being alert. And I strongly believe that the only way you can inspire a team is by making yourself human. Mm -hmm. If you come across as this perfect robot that knows everything all the time and is dictating what to do and you're not, you're not being authentic, it's okay to show weakness to a team. It's, 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 it's more okay to do that and then to pick yourself up and show them how to do it when you've made a mistake or you failed or whatever to get back up and, you know, get back, get back in the race. Um, but I think the authenticity piece is what's been missing for the longest time because people have veneered this director kind of leader or authoritative kind of leader that sort of dictates, but that's not what successful leadership looks like. Successful leadership looks like somebody being inspired by somebody else and growing and feeling like they're being enabled to be the best that they can be by that person. And at the end of the day, we're all pushing towards something common, an objective that we accomplish. But to do that, you have to want to. If you're forcing people to do something, it's not the best thing. And do I want to be, do I want to be led by a robot or some authoritative figure that imposes the, the way of doing things? No, not at all. None of us do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have to start thinking about who we're leading and how we would want to be lead or, led ourselves. And I would hope that it would be from a place of authenticity, of humanity, which is where the care and the compassion come in play. I mean, I never heard either one of those two words throughout three years of my undergraduate degree and all the other degrees right. I did after that. Compassion that. and caring, <laughs> it comes back to, I guess, the whole thing about the kissing. I remember I told you about, um, who talks about that? Especially not in finance, a bunch of guys, you know, they're always talking yeah. about profit and I don't know, some violent merger and acquisition. It's, it's very violent, the language, at least in yeah. my industry. In yeah. Finance. You no, know, it's very, very violent. It's not a caring language at all, you know. But at the end of the day, I mean, the deal will only be done if the right people are around the table. And the only right people who are around the table are the ones who want to be there and who have chosen to be there or have been encouraged to be there. And then, you know, to get the right people, then you have to listen to your team to figure out who they are. So to do that, you have to be human to start off with. You know, leaders are human beings too, you know, until, until I've been proven that aerobic can do it. Until, yeah. until, until <laughs> the contrary, that's right. Until the contrary. So in, in my book, I talk about vulnerability and as you were talking about authenticity, that's kind of the word that pop up in my head. It's being able to, or what's your definition of being vulnerable and showing up vulnerability? I think it has to do with not holding back. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be so vulnerable that people look at you as some, you know, unstable person who can't hold it together. I think people need to know that you're strong and solid, that they can lean on you and that they trust that you're going to take them throughout this destination and be there to support them. 
But I also think that if you're going through something difficult as a group and it's sad, that you're allowed to be sad. I think not showing emotion has been the biggest mistake over the last hundred years in terms of leadership. Um, Have I ever cried publicly? No. But if I had to one day and it was warranted, I probably would. Now I would. Maybe I wouldn't have in my 20s. Obviously, that's part of the growth process of feeling comfortable with who you are. Um, But I'm not at all ashamed to share my weaknesses with people. I am not a technical person. I am not a small minute driven person. On the contrary, I scare, I, I score like less than 10% on attention to detail. It's just not who I am. I have to stop trying to position myself in that strata. So a few years ago, I had a team um, in the wealth management firm that I was working with that I had pretty much built, like the 20 something people around me, I had pretty much all had picked them. And then we went through an exercise of color coding ourselves. Like, you know, red, you're a driver, blue, you're, I don't know, well, there's four, four, four colors. I think, no, I think blue was the technical person. Red was the driver, blue was the technical, yellow was the social butterfly, and green, I think, was the intuitive person. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this, I never did this test before I hired the people, but I had this gut feeling that I had hired a team that would be complementary to me. And I remember telling my boss at the time, the managing partner of the firm, I said, I really think I've hired. And he says, they're so different from you. Why? You, you must be fighting all the time with them because they, they just don't. So no, I don't think you understand. And I kept putting my finger on it and then the, the results came back. Like in my whole team, I was like the worst blue. I think I had 5% blue. And like literally 75% of my team were like 90% blue. I had surrounded myself with people that half the time I wanted to rip their head off because they were going way too in the weeds for me. But I guess instinctively, I knew that I had to have a team that would complement my weakness, which was not being very detail-driven. I'm like the big picture chick. I can put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and I see where it's all going, and then I have to find the right pieces to put them together. But I'm sure I'm not the one that's going to cut out the little pieces. I'm, you'll, you'll lose me. You know, I'll lose my mind in the process. And I remember going back to show my, my boss at the time the chart. I said, look at this. I said, we're all the same on the green and the yellow, like on the social touchy-feely part and the intuitive. But I said, it's like me and them. <laughs> he says, that's not the important thing for me. So I'm just happy you didn't choose all drivers because he says, you're the driver. I had like 98% drive and like everybody else was like 20% driver, which is a good thing because if we had all been like generals, it would have been a problem. But it was, it was, it was so in a way... I guess, gratifying to understand or to, to figure out or realize that I had instinctively chosen a team that was complementing my weakness. So I shared that with them. They didn't pick up on it. I said, look at that. I said, I'm useless on the technical part, but look how great you all are. Why do you think I made, it made everybody feel good? You know, it made me feel good in a way. So I'm, all my gear is protected. The back is protected. The front's protected. You know, we still got stuck with a lot of technical issues, but at least, you know, we had a team that was, but I think the the humility to recognize that we, we don't have it all. I mean, there are strengths that I have and weaknesses that I have, and I don't mind sharing them. Sharing the mistakes, I do. <laughs> you know, when I F-U-C-K up radically, I, I use it as a teaching, and it's a, it's a cathartic way for me to also process the mistake. Um, so that allows people the the comfort to do it themselves. You know, I remember when I had the last team that I managed, we would meet once a week. And we would have a mistake sharing moment. We'd go around the table yeah. and say, hey, what did we screw up on this week individually or collectively? And we'd yeah. talk about it. Yeah. And it, it became a running gag, you know, like, oh, here she comes. And it, at the end, it was like, who, who had the biggest mistake? Which is not the way I was hoping it was going to go. But it almost became, you know, a bunch of guys. It almost became like a competition, like the biggest mistake. But it was fun because it, it broke that perception or that even brain pattern that it was 
okay to be imperfect and it was okay to make mistakes. I mean, obviously if we lost 20 million for the firm, we'd be in trouble, but I don't mean that. You understand what I mean? I mean, you know, little things that allow us to grow. You don't grow by doing things right all the time. You grow by falling and hurting yourself and, and making mistakes and then analyzing it and realizing and internalizing it. And then it becomes part of your DNA and who you are. I think the advantage of being more mature now, like older is I've had a lot of those <laughs> scrapes and, and bruises that have collectively made me stronger, but have allowed me to be able to go pick back into my history of my career and even of my life to share those stories of failure and disappointment and to show people, you know, I'm still standing, yeah. you know, did it set me back? Yeah, probably. Uh, am I the only one? No. Other people? Yes. And, you know, I, I'm just one of millions of people, but you know, my life is my life and this is who I've become because of it. And yours, you should be proud of the good and the bad too. And that, that's the heart again, you know, that that's the humanity. That's to me, that's the engine of leadership, not the intellectual part. The only part that I think you can actually learn in school is probably the intellectual part. The that's process. right. That's right. And that's, the guts and the heart, no. Yeah. And that's kind of the fixed mindset when we, when we think about uh, Carol Dweck's work, you know, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. You know, the fixed mindset is I need to have the answer right. And in some instances, we need to have that. But what I'm hearing from you is if, if we entertain, if we hold that space where we have a growth mindset where falling and picking ourselves up is the right way to go, then our job is to grow. Our job is not to have the right answer. And the more we grow, then the more results we're creating is yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, and allow for the team members, the, the space and the, the right to fail <laughs> without repercussions. You know, again, I'll put a box around that. I mean, if <laughs> the person is fraudulent or loses 20 million, we might have a harder conversation, but you know, I, I'm talking in much larger, broader terms. Like you, people have to feel that they have a space, safe space, in the team to share their concerns. Cause like, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, my husband's a tactical helicopter pilot. So obviously there's a lot of flying jargon around the house and he often has to analyze crashes. And he says some of the most disastrous crashes in, in commercial airlines over the last 20 years had to do with challenging authority. You know, you know, Asian cultures respect whoever has made it up to the leadership position. So if you have a cockpit with a pilot and a co-pilot and a third assistant, and the co-pilot and assistant think that the call the pilot is making is wrong, they would rather die than challenge the authority. And it's a little bit the same with the French. I mean, the French are based on a very hierarchical society. And there's some historical crashes in France where the co-pilot, you can tell in the voice recording of the black box that he's kind of trying to find a way to tell the pilot, this is not the way to go. Or to... But no. And in the end, they crashed the frigging plane because they weren't able to break through that whole hierarchical barrier. They weren't comfortable from, for cultural reasons. So it's one thing to talk about this here in Quebec, within Canada, within North America, but there's a whole other cultural index that comes into play when you're dealing with all different kinds of cultures. And then I mean, the question you know, becomes, how do we die, quote unquote, as, as teams when we don't speak up or we don't have that courage to speak up or as a leader to, to listen to it? How do yeah, we? Yeah, but if you have an Asian person in your team that's really born in Asia and raised in Asia, unless you call on them, they will never raise their voice and they will not challenge you. So you have to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're leading 
an international team. There's a whole other level of education that you need to, to, to understand of the cultural context in which each of these individuals are coming from. You know, the, the Asian people do not challenge and they do not raise their hand. You have to call on them. But if you're a leader who's not used to dealing with Asian people, your first thought is going to be, wow, this woman's an idiot. She has nothing to say. I've paid her to be like, you know, the voice of God knows the Asian market. We're on calls all the time. She never says anything. It's not right. It's because you have to understand that in their culture, you do not raise your hand to say anything until the person who's supposedly the leader calls on you to say that. So if you never call on that person to give their opinion, they never will. You know, um, I'll, I'll give you another example. We, we um, tend to think that because we speak French, we're very close to the French in France. I mean, we couldn't be further apart than they are. We're one of the most indirect cultures in the world. We're a lot closer to the, um, the British in a way. And I'd say the closest probably is the Scottish, but we're actually really close to Argentina. If we want to say something negative to somebody or criticize them, we wrap it up with three positive things. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you're really good at this. And honestly, you're great at that. And this is not so bad. But by the way, maybe you could fix a little bit this, which in essence was the most important thing to say in the evaluation, but we can't say that because we just, it doesn't work in Quebec, you know? Oh my gosh, we're going to hurt their feelings. Oh, we can't do that, blah, blah, blah. They're going to think I'm a B-I-T-C-H. You go to France, it's like, oh my gosh, you want to die. If there's something they don't like about you, they sit you down in the office and say, okay, François, ça marche pas, là. Ça a vraiment pas d'allure, là. Ça, ça marche vraiment pas. T'es tout croche là-dedans. There might be 10 things that you're doing well, they'll never tell you. They're just going to focus on that one thing because they're used to arguing. They're super direct, but we're not. I mean, you know, the Americans are very direct just because it's a culture built on all these different cultures who spoke all different languages. Why do you think it takes three words to get your point across where it takes three sentences here in Canada, in Quebec to get your say? The Americans had to find a way to communicate with each other really quickly, you know? So we are still a very direct society, but if you go to Asia and especially China and you sit down at a dinner, you can have somebody go on for an hour telling you about a story of something. And by the end of the story, you have to figure out the message he was trying to give you because he's not going to tell you. He's, he's, he's going to say, hey, you know, I gave you the what we call in French in parabole, and you figure it out. So you put a, a Chinese person with a French person in a room, if they're not killing each other but within 15 minutes, probably because the French can't stand the fact that the Asian person is not getting their point across. The Asian is completely insulted because the French person is only going straight to what's not working and attacking them personally. But people forget about that. We're not identical in how we communicate. We're not identical in how we process information. And so that cultural communication index course, if you're dealing with people from different cultures, is super interesting. And it can make the difference between you being a respected leader who knows what they're doing to somebody who's just off the, off the rockers completely all the time. And, and back to the guts is what I'm hearing because then your intuition, educated intuition needs to kick in when, when you're leading with the international crowd, if you will. Yeah, the intellectual part has to kick yeah. in. It's, it's one thing, like if the cues, I mean, you have to always be in tune. The cues have to be there. If there's somebody who hasn't spoken, I mean, obviously it could be a perfect French Canadian who's just super shy. I mean, if you've learned the other social profiles, like, you know, the butterfly and the asocial type, there are people who just can't speak up. And if you do, even if you ask them to speak up, they will always agree with you. They just can't disagree. It's just not in their nature. They make, it makes them feel ill to disagree, even if they don't, you know. But you have to be aware of this. You have to be – that's why I said sociology, psychology, almost psychiatric experience. <laughs> These are all things that you almost intuitively need, and you need the, the, the educational base 
to really get into understanding people. I mean, each person is 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 a, a, a genetic makeup of X, but it's also a cultural makeup of Y. Plus, put in there everything else they've lived through since that the point they were born to then. Mix all that up. You, I, each individual is so unique that you almost need a crash course on how to like, you know, eventually you get a bit better at this. And there are patterns that, that emerge about different types of profiles of people. But I mean, it, it is the, and it's getting more difficult because now people are a little more front and center with certain things that they feel is super important about who they are, whether it's around diversity or dignity and all other issues, which wasn't even part of the equation up until maybe I want to say a couple of years ago, you know, we were very much in the diversity gender strata, but now it's blown up to a point that the whole gender diversity aspect is almost irrelevant. Now, you know, the word diversity is so much of a larger concept than just the gender piece of it. Um, And the importance of understanding the diversities, if you will. Francois, yeah, I- and the, not just the, the, the understanding, but the desire to do so, to, to understand the individual. I mean, it's a privilege. I, I'll say it again. It's a privilege to, to lead people. It's the, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, and it's a privilege to do so. But to do it well, you have to be authentic in the way you do it, and you have to take the time to understand whom that person is and what makes them tick and how can you help them if there's anything they can help and, and grow from them. I mean, it's, like I said, it's not a one-way street. Every person that I've had the privilege of leading has impacted me in a small or larger way and has reshaped a lot of how I think about what leadership is and how you can help people and how they can help you. It's why I love being a mentor because people all think, oh, yeah, here's this person who has all this experience coming to tell people how to do their thing. Half the time I go, wow, what am I doing here? I'm learning, you know, I'm not sure I'm doing anything for this person. This person is doing a lot for me, you know, and that's how it should be. You know, that's the right way for it to happen. Francoise, I could speak with you all day. It's amazing. Um, I want to make sure, though, because before we leave, that I actually present you. You know that I've only presented you with the, the Association of Quebec Women in Finance, but you're actually the president and managing partner of DGC Capital. And, you, and I love this. You invest in disruptors and game-changing companies at their early growth stage in order to create positive impact in society. What would you add to that? I think you summed it up perfectly. Um, it's another way of doing investments in in, yeah. in, in this industry. Uh, we were coming at it from a space where we wanted the investment to be a disruptor in the sense that it was changing the industry from which it was in, in a positive way to mm-hmm. embedder society, communities, the world, I guess. Um, what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, well, one of the investments that was made by the family office that I work with is a technology for protective hearing gear. And over time, they found that the protective hearing gear, like the big ears that we've been using in industrial applications, is a technology going back to the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. It's never been updated. And I know this for a fact because my husband wears these for the helicopter that he flies. And after 30 years of flying a helicopter and 3,000 hours of flying, his whole middle range of his hearing is shot because of the vibrations. It's gone. And if you talk to anybody who works in some kind of industrial application, whether it's mining or airline, you know, the guys and the girls on the tarmac. um, And what people haven't realized over the last 20 years is we're moving from cigarette as being the number one cause for legal suits around the world we're already in now is hearing loss. People work in environments where their hearing is not protected. So this Montreal-based company developed a technology which molds itself to the inside of your ear and protects the hearing 
aspect, like from, from noise up to 90 something percent. But in the last couple of years, what we've been able to add to it is Bluetooth technology and monitoring technologies. So not only can you speak and have voice to voice conversations at very extreme distances where there's loud noises all around, it cancels everything out except the human voice. So the other thing we don't realize is even if you do have protective gear and you're in a tarmac and let's say the plane is coming and the guy is like, you know, 50 feet away from you, he's going to be hit. For him to understand, you're going to have to tell him to take his ears off and you're going to scream. You know, the, the plane is backing up. Get out of the way, Joe, because how is he going to feel? You can't, you can't voice it like that. So the fact of not taking the protective gear off your ears during these loud noises and being able to speak is, is revolutionary. So the investment was made in that company because for us, that's the epitome or the embodiment of a game-changing technology that will revolutionize the industry from which it is in for the better of human being, humankind. That's the premise. And right now I'm finishing the raise on a, a venture capital fund of a $100 million fund, which will only do that. We will be going out to the world, mostly I'd say North America, looking for these companies that have developed something that will change the aspect of diversity, dignity, green tech, well care, and anything that's a positive disruptor. So it's pretty exciting. It's, it's another way of looking at investments, which is, yeah, we all want to make money, but the premise to look at a company first is not the profitability aspect. The first aspect will be what kind of good can it do? What kind of impact can it have? The second criteria will then, of course, we need to make money. If we want to make money, we need to make money to be able to invest in other companies. It's sort of like, you know, but it will not be the, the first thing we look at. The first barrier of entry for us in terms of consideration will be the impact aspect. And, and people are sensitive to that more and more. So people want to support companies, want to support people that... Yeah. You, know, you know who started? It's not. It's women who, who, who women. started having this, and, yeah. and, and youth, yeah. the under 30 crowd. Um, you know, I was working within a traditional wealth management firm with mutual funds, uh, you know, four or five years ago, and I had been for 10, and my female clients were leaving me. <laughs> not because I wasn't doing a good job, but they were telling me, hey, you know, um, love you to death it's not the kind of investment we want to do. We want to take our money and invest yeah. in, entrepreneur, in an entrepreneur and we want to be able to feel that mm -hmm. our money is working towards changing something. Mm -hmm. And when I get pitches from young teams that are looking for money, like the other way around, they come to me and they're looking for money. The first thing they tell me is this will be a revolutionary X because this is what it's going to do for the world. Mm. my older teams don't talk about that. They come in and say, oh, my RRR is going to be 30% after five years. Yeah, but what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. The, the, the approach is completely different. But the women had started talking about this impact aspect before they even knew that that's what they were doing, just because they wanted to have a relationship with the company, the, the company they were investing in. You know, I'm talking about wealthier women, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the younger generation started kicking in. Their children started saying the exact same thing. They were coming to me and saying, listen, what's this going to do for the world? Why would I invest in this when I can invest in this instead? And then people would come to me now with company ideas, which are brilliant. Like one young team in Montreal has created a dog food using cricket protein. <laughs> um, the crickets renew themselves every eight weeks. It's a pure kind of protein. The dog doesn't care, can't see the difference. But we have a renewable energy there that's infinite, which is bugs. And um, so why are we, you know, transforming 
food that it should be used for humans that's in a, a rarity kind of environment more and more you know when we could use i mean we're not there yet i think with the crickets or some are maybe for humans but i think for pets yeah. you know it's a pure source of protein and why not but like when the pitch came in it was like yeah we, this is a renewable source of energy food energy used on our pets because the crickets you know we don't spray them there's no antibiotics to give them they they're born they live they die within eight weeks or whatever you know and it's um it was it was fascinating you know that they were looking for a way to alleviate like food scarcity for humans by converting something that was being used for humans and you know eliminating that aspect for the pets and trying to find something else it, it was kind of interesting you know they come at it from a very different angle and what i'm really hearing from you is is all about impact and yeah. uh you may have read it in, in my book, Empower Your Team, where I talk about your USC, your unique strategic contribution, where we we focus on the impact that we want to have at the highest strategic level. And um, I'm really curious. I struggle with that concept with yours. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I have a, a clean answer for you, but um, um, I think at you know, my 20s were a lot about proving to the world what I could do. My 30s was a lot about proving to myself what I could do. My 40s, there was a shift in terms of understanding that my role on this earth really was to, I guess, impact others to be the best that they could be. And my legacy project would be to make whatever thing I touched a bit better than when I first came to it. Um, so that's a very, like, large answer. But, you know, like... I'm trying to reconciliate inspiring people and, and helping them be the best that they can be. And also the concept, you know, Maya Angelou said, yep. you can say a lot of things to people and they'll forget, but how you treated them, yep. they will never forget, you know, like how you made them feel, yes. they will never forget, you know? So like the fact that you started this whole podcast by mentioning a speech that I gave two or three years ago and you still remembered it, you just made my week, if not my month with that one, because, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, la, 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 is there anything that comes across? But see, something stuck with you. And I think that's become a bit my mission in terms of leadership in a very large concept. It's something that I have gone through, a story that I share can spark somebody into thinking of something differently, being better at something else, or just, you know, change de cap, as we say in French, and what they were doing then I think my job is done. You know, I, I still like beautiful things, so I need money for that. So I'm not saying I, I don't want to make more money. That's what I'm saying. But I, I realize as I'm getting older that the, the biggest gratification I get is in speaking to people after, yeah. a few months after, a few years after, 10 years later saying, oh my gosh, Francoise, you don't remember this or maybe you do, but you know, when you were my mentor, you said this to me and I got me on this path and then everything's been transformed. Like one little thing. It's not the big things. It's the little things. And you don't know which one of the little things people latch on to. But if I have enough of those little nuggets that I can throw out to the world and somehow it can help somebody unstick themselves or become better at this or change something and that will better the world, you know? So I guess inspiration inspire it's it, 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 the spark you know i'm like it's the, the spark finding the spark or creating the spark for people to 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 grow uh, i don't even know how to explain that i it i was reading this last night actually it might have been a bit too late I, i'll get back to you in a couple of weeks if oh, i can great. figure out how to encapsulate that in one word because your darn thing is like three words like what do you mean three words you know not three <laughs> concepts not three words you know <laughs> I, I once had this exercise in management where i had to define who yeah. i was as a as a as 
not as a leader, just as a business person in three words. You know that it's taken me 10 years to get down to the three words? Yeah. The first one was super easy because I've, I've always envisioned myself as an ambassador. Yeah. Like I will, you know, espouse a cause and, and have it live through me and it becomes part of me. I mean, I've done it for the AFFQ. I do it for the IWF. I've done it for women in finance. It's just the ambassadorial. Actually, that's my dream end job. If I can end my life as being the ambassador of something, Mexico or London, I'll be in seventh heaven because that's what I wanted to do as a, as a young woman. I actually wrote the exam for the, the foreign, um, uh, the, the, what they call the foreign affairs and, and to be in the diplomatic corps. But unfortunately, in 1992, I passed the exam, but they weren't hiring anybody. And I remember saying, this is not working. I'm not waiting a whole year to pass the exam again to do this. But I've always had this little thing in the back of my mind that being an ambassador was like the ultimate end for me when it came to, to a role I could play in society. And it was so entrenched in me that when I was 18, I actually went to take a bartending course. I still have my bartending license because I was convinced that be, to be a good diplomat, I had to shake drinks. I think I watched too many James Bond <laughs> for that, you know. Yeah, well, I still know the difference between a Bloody Mary and a, a, a Virgin Caesar, but, you know, uh, but it just goes to show that the ambassador. And the second one was a rainmaker. I mean, I'm really good at business development. I'm really good at convincing people to come into something, convincing people to give money to something, because if I'm convinced in it, I can be a really damn good convincer myself. You know, if I'm passionate about something and I believe in it a hundred percent, so the rainmaking, you know, and the, the ambassador were really easy. But the third one is like, oh, I swear. And it's only in the last three months that I realized that I'm a connector. I connect projects to people, people to people, people to ideas, <laughs> ideas to places, places to this. I just, I thoroughly enjoy if I see a connection that can be made to do it. I, you know, I, I want to call myself an introducing service, but it's not that. It's, it's beyond that. So my third word was connector. I mean, for many years, I would say, yeah, I'm a partnership builder. Yes, but it's not quite the same thing. Connector means I can connect all kinds of things. It could be an idea to a person, an idea to a project. It could be financing. to something. Ideas together. It's not partnership building. Partnership building is within connecting for me. So the third word is connector. But I had that seminar like 10 years ago. And it's taking me another 10 years to you know, figure out what the third word was. So now it's taking me 10 years. I got those three words. But when you pulled out that, your leadership style, the three words are, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got, you've got those, but you're, you, I see, I think it's really interesting because you, you made a story out of it, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. I've gotten really good in the story part, you know? (laughs) And and to see the difference between those, sorry, between those three periods of our lives, I could see, I could hear how different your leadership was or is based on where you stand. If I want to prove myself, it's not the same as I want to create uh, the best versions of others. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. There's a lot of arrogance in youth things. Yeah. It's what pushes us to yeah. move forward. I think the arrogance is replaced with wisdom over time. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm positioning myself like I'm some 75-year-old woman. I'm not, you know, but um, I consider that I'm at a place now after almost 30 years in the market that I can sort of use that word. <laughs> Uh, and and be comfortable with it, but I and there's still a lot to learn. But uh, I think wisdom has replaced um, arrogance, and the fire that moves me forward or that fuels like my interest in what I'm doing has not gone out in any way, shape, or form. I'm still as passionate about a lot of the things that I do 
probably more so now because I, I'm more comfortable in what I'm good at and what I'm not, you know, it takes a lot to, to recognize what you think you're good at and have it confirmed and to acknowledge what you're bad at and <laughs> admit it and, and live on, move on, you know, to a certain extent. Um, but I, I consider myself in a really comfortable space now. Like I, I feel that I'm coming into a, the next 20, 20 years really well prepared. And I consider myself young still to have achieved that level of experiences of being a leader. And I say it very technically just because I thoroughly enjoy board work. And I find that very often where the fifties are bypassed as being maybe a bit too young and people wait yeah. until you're towards the end yeah, of your I career, but yeah. I'm still in the prime. And I consider I've had because of various reasons. I mean, you know, you met me, I'm almost six foot tall. So I was this height at 12. So people started treating me like I was 18 at 12. Uh, when I was 18, they were treating me like I was 25. And when I was 25, they thought I was 40, which was very scary. But, you know, I've always had a maturity that was beyond my years. And there's an authority. you're 25. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's an authority that comes with the height. Yeah. You know, when you're very tall and you're six foot one with your heels, for some reason, there's a distortion when it comes to authority that is automatically imposed on me, whether I like it or not. And I've learned very young to project my energy and my height, which can be very scary for people. It's what I've used to intimidate men. I hate to say it, but I work in an industry of men. So when things don't work out for me, I stand up. They can't deal with that. Six foot one woman who's projecting energy, uh, doesn't work at all, you know, but I've had to learn that tool of the trade to get my message across sometimes, you know, maybe less now because I'm not as young anymore, but it was something that really I could use. I'm often scared to think if I was five foot two, would I be where I am today? And I honestly don't think I would because I wouldn't have been able to use that tool the same way. You, know, you can have very competent women at five foot two. If the guy's six foot four, he's looking down at you. There's not much you can do unless you stand on three chairs to get that eye contact going the same way. You know, I destabilize people with my direct eye contact because half the time I'm looking down on them, which sounds very horrible, but it's, it is what nature gave me in terms of my physical attributes. So I've had to use it sometimes to, to, to sit my power, I guess, with certain groups that were not my subordinates, but, you know, people that were either at my level or a bit higher than I was. Yeah. So we have to kind of find our own power within what we yeah. have and yeah. to, to nurture that power and use it is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is to learn how to manage your energy. You know, when you're giving, 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 I give a lot. I give a lot of my time um, to all types of, you know, my boards that are nonprofit, the people that I mentor. I must have mentored like 100 people over the last 20 years. I mean, I've, I'm constantly mentoring three or four people yearly, but I never lose track of the ones I had before. <laughs> in the case in point this summer, I had like four yeah. of my ex-mentees who drove by somehow in the region and ended up having, coming them over for the family. I'd never even met their spouses, but it's just the kind of relationship I, you know, I've developed with these I people over, over time. But that is, in a way, it should feed your energy. But in another way, when you're trying to build people up, it sucks a lot of energy out of you. And that energy level has to be managed too. Um, you know, I have a lot to give, but I find that as I'm getting older, it's, it's, it's harder to replenish that. Come back to the cost, the, the, the cottage. I need to be surrounded by, by gardens and plants and trees and birds to, to, to tap back into that sort of basic energy of the world. To me, that's where I get it. You know, some people drink and some people do drugs and some people do other things, but I, my resource or my replugging back to nature is the way I sort of replenish that level of energy and I'm able to go and, and run another marathon about, of helping people. But well, not everybody has figured that out for themselves, you know, and that's where the 
artificial supports come into play and that's where it gets a little dangerous, you know, because I, uh, I'm very lucky that gardening is my thing. (laughs) Very lucky that you've, you've been so generous with us. Our audience will be thrilled to listen to you and, and see how, and, and to hear how real and authentic you are and strong and powerful and yet very uh, vulnerable in sharing your successes, your challenges. I, I want to say thank you so much. for. It's been a pleasure. Honestly, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope that we can continue. That oh, we will for sure. When, when things become a bit more normal, we will cross paths, maybe at a gala, but hopefully at another activity. I mean, listen, okay. it's a small street, Montreal, as they say. We should be bumping into each other. <laughs> Thank you so much. Paul. Thanks, Chloe. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this Empower Your Team podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and can take away powerful tools and ideas. For more free content, events, and development tools, visit our website at empoweryourteam.com or on our LinkedIn or Facebook pages. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter to continue receiving Empower Your Team content and insights.